Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson have co-authored We Have No Idea, a guide to the unknown universe. Jorge Cham is the creator of PhD Comics, and Daniel Whiteson is a particle physicist at the University of California, Irvine. There's dark matter spread out through the universe in these blobs, and normal matter clumps together where the dark matter is. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have things like galaxies because the dark matter's gravity allowed galaxies to form. Plus, I introduce a new segment, Progressive Short, a five-minute news report on issues that matter. This week, Les Jameson. The NSA had the capability to stop the 9-11 attacks. According to a recent interview I did with William Binney, the software that he designed with Ed Loomis called Thin Thread, all of these uh, incidents, terrorist incidents, could have been detected and thwarted. So the NSA failed to keep the country secure. Time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. We should remember how we got to where we are as a country. Why do we have this powerful economy? Why do we have this um, successful economic engine? Um, It's because of science. All of the money that we invested in basic research over the last 50 years that have led to technological revolutions, all of that comes from funding basic science. And so I think we need to improve science education, absolutely. I also think that uh, as a society, we should pour a lot more money into basic research. And I don't say that just because my career is in basic research, but from a very simple point of view, it's, a, it's an incredible investment in our future and in our children and in and, and, uh in our scientific progress. There's so many places where if we spent more money, we could literally just buy knowledge. You know, if we built a larger particle accelerator, we could learn secrets of the universe that are just waiting there for us to do it. And the amounts of money we're talking about are large when we're compared to an individual's expenses. You know, a particle accelerator costs billions of dollars. But they're tiny when it comes, when you compare it to the economy of our country, which is trillions of dollars, and tiny compared to other things we spend money on, like aircraft carriers. That is particle physicist Daniel Whiteson of the University of California, Irvine. He, along with Ph.D. comics creator Jorge Cham, have co-written We Have No Idea, a guide to the unknown universe. In this book, they explain everything we don't know about the universe, from cosmic rays and dark matter to time travel and the Big Bang. Filled with their popular infographics, cartoons, and clear and entertaining explanations, uh, this book is perfect for anyone who is curious about science and all the big questions we still have not answered. I'll be speaking with Daniel Whiteson and Jorge Cham in about five minutes. With this episode of Progressive Spirit, I introduce Progressive Short, a five-minute news report about issues of importance and interest. On this week's Progressive Short, I speak with Les Jameson. Les Jameson is the founder of hr14.org. This website, hr14.org, advocates for transparency in government and a full exposure of facts related to 9-11. Les Jameson is on Skype with me from Brooklyn, New York, to talk about a critical piece of legislation that is before Congress right now. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, is set to expire on December 31, 2017. This is the language which allows for warrantless spying on all Americans. According to Mr. Jameson, there is legislation before Congress to extend 702 and make warrantless spying legal and permanent. Welcome, Les Jameson, to Progressive Short. Thanks a lot, John. Great to be with you. What is FISA and in particular Section 702? Yes, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. 
this was first put into uh, law back in, uh, I think it was 1978. And uh, then in 2008, there was an amendment. This was after the revelations of whistleblower Edward Snowden on the fact that the NSA was illegally spying on all Americans and far more than just metadata that was getting content. And um, in a response to that in 2008, an amendment called Section 702 or Title 7 of uh, FISA was put into law and it's about to expire the end of uh, this month. However, there are attempts to renew it for four years, and there's another attempt to renew it uh, and make it permanent. And what's uh, shocking about this is that the NSA and its warrantless spying and you know bulk data collection has failed to prevent any terror attacks. And you know we've had one after the other since 9/11. There's been many across Europe and uh, here in the United States. There was a recent one here in Manhattan about five weeks ago. And uh, according to whistleblowers within the NSA, uh, namely William Binney, Ed Loomis, Kirk Wiebe, Thomas Drake, uh, the NSA had the capability to stop the 9-11 attacks. And according to a recent interview I did with William Binney, the NSA has the capability with uh, software that he designed with Ed Loomis called Thin Thread, where all of these uh, incidents, terrorist incidents, could have been detected and thwarted. So the NSA has uh, failed to uh, keep the country secure, national security. So what we need to do is, uh, John, and I have this up at hr14.org. We need to study up on this a little bit and then take action in the, the next week, preferably, to call our legislators to say the NSA has been a failure. They need to be held accountable. Uh, and the our civil liberties that are protected under the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment must be upheld. Um, and that is absolutely paramount. Who is behind uh, the extension of warrantless spying? Tom Cotton, Republican of uh, Arkansas. He's uh, one of the main ones. And then we have some others here. Um, in New York, there's uh, Stephen King. Um, Devin Nunes, who's head of the House Intelligence Committee, is in favor of extending 702, uh, which is the legalization of warrantless spying. On the other side, we have Ron Wyden and Rand Paul with legislation called the USA Rights Act, which seeks to limit uh, spying capabilities of the NSA. You also mentioned on your website, hr14.org, that there could be a covert way to extend Section 702. Yes. Uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Paul Ryan may do a backdoor approach here, which is very covert. They may uh, sneak in a rider in the year-end spending bill, which contains language on uh, the extension of 702 and thereby legalizing warrantless spying by the NSA. This is also up on hr14.org. The future of civil liberties is at stake. We're at a, a major crossroads here in our constitutional freedom. So I just urge everybody to go to hr14.org. You'll see the instructions of how to lobby your legislators. And, and it's an excellent opportunity to show Congress there's a huge constituency out here watching what they're doing and will hold them accountable if they fail to preserve our civil liberties. Les Jameson of hr14.org from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you. Thank you, John. A new feature on Progressive Spirit, Progressive Short is a five-minute news report about issues of importance and interest. My guests today are Daniel Whiteson and Jorge Cham, a PhD comics creator, Jorge Cham, and particle physicist. Daniel Whiteson, and uh, they team up to explain uh, everything we don't know 
about the universe, uh, from cosmic rays and dark matter to time travel and the Big Bang. And their book that we're going to discuss uh, today is called We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Known Universe. And it is uh, science made fun. Welcome, guys, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks, John. Thanks very much for having us on. And uh, just like to point out that our book is actually called A Guide to the Unknown Universe. What did I say? Did I say known universe? universe. Uh, Fortunately, the unknown universe is much bigger. And uh, the point of the book is to think about all the things we haven't yet understood. Yeah, in fact... uh, in in the book, you come with this graph in many different ways, a pie graph, a bar graph, many graphs as possible to show that uh, 5% of of what we know is, is everything we know about the universe, that uh, 95% we don't know. So here's the question. How, how do you know what we don't know is 95% of the universe? That's a great question, John. And um, the shortest version of the answer is that that's just one way of looking at it. There's lots of things that we don't know that we don't know, so the amount of our ignorance is unlimited. But we can speak very specifically and quantitatively about one type of knowledge, which is the fraction of stuff in the universe. So if you add up all the matter and the energy in the universe, 5% is the fraction of that energy, that energy and matter, which is bound up in the kind of stuff that we're familiar with, stars and planets and gas and dust and hamsters and ice cream sundaes, all of that stuff. So how can we know that 5% of the energy in the universe is devoted to that kind of matter? Well, we can count up how much of the normal kind of matter there is. We just look out into the night sky. We see stars. We see galaxies. We do a few extrapolations. But we're pretty sure we know in our observable universe how many stars and galaxies there are. We can also measure the total amount of energy that's in the observable universe. Because thanks to Einstein's general relativity, the total amount of energy in the universe will bend space. So the more energy there is, the more bent space is. And we can measure that bending. So we can just do the numerator, which is the amount of stuff we can see and observe, divided by all of the stuff. And that comes out to about 5%. So we can kind of uh, do it by uh, what's not there or what appears to be there, doing those calculations in that way, the roundabout way. That's right. And we've, and um, if that doesn't sound very persuasive, I'd just like to tell you and your um, listeners that we've checked this in many different ways. So we measure the total amount of energy in the universe in several ways, um, one by looking at the curvature of space, another by looking at the very, very early universe to see how the total energy in the universe affects the ripples in the very early universe. And we've also measured the amount of stuff in the universe several ways. Plus, we have some ideas for what the rest of the universe might be. So 5% is normal matter. 27% is this stuff we call dark matter. And we don't know very much about it. We know it's dark. We know that it's matter. That's about all we know about it. And the rest is something that we call dark energy. 68% is dark energy. And that's the thing that's ripping the universe apart. And we can measure those things separately. We don't know very much about them, so they're definitely the unknown category. But we can add those things up. The normal matter is 5%, the dark matter is 27%, the dark energy is 68%. And we add those independently measured quantities up, and we get the same answer as when we check what's the total energy in the universe. So what is then, uh, what can we say about dark matter and dark energy? But let's start with dark matter and then go to dark energy, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Well, I think the, the first thing you can say is that it has a cool name. They have cool names. They do have cool names. Uh, dark, very mysterious, going to the dark side. Yeah, yeah. The physics, PR, physics PR department did a good job on that one. It makes it sound <laughs> mysterious. Um, but it's only mysterious. It's like the dark ages, right? It's just that we don't know a lot about it. Yeah, that's a great analogy, actually. It's dark in the sense that it's mysterious, right? Right. And dark energy right. and dark matter... Um, are, that's about the only relationship they have is the word dark, which re- reflects our ignorance of them. Um, in the case of dark matter, when we say dark, we mean that it doesn't give off any light. It doesn't reflect any light. There's no way for us to interact with it. We know that dark matter is there because we've seen its effect gravitationally. So it, ha- it is matter, which means it's some kind of stuff, which means it feels gravity. So it affects stuff. But because gravity is so weak, you can only see the effect of dark matter's gravity on really big scales, like the size of an entire galaxy. 
And in fact, that's how dark matter was first discovered, is when they were looking at galaxies and seeing how they spun. You could think of a galaxy like a massive cosmic merry-go-round with ping-pong balls on it, which are the stars. If you spin that galaxy really fast, you expect the stars might fly off into outer space, but the gravity of the galaxy holds them in place. And many years ago, they went out and checked. They said, we can measure how fast these galaxies are rotating, and we can count how many stars there are and estimate how much gravity there is and ask, is there enough gravity in these stars, in these galaxies, to hold all the stars in place? And they discovered that there wasn't nearly enough gravity. That is, the galaxies were spinning way too fast, and the stars should be flung out into, into, into intergalactic space. But, of course, they're not, right? Our star is not being thrown out into the deep blackness of space. So they said there must be some new form of matter, something invisible, therefore dark, which is giving us an extra gravity, therefore matter. So that's the, where dark matter comes from. It's an invisible source of new gravity. So an invisible source of new gravity. So it doesn't have uh, any light. You can't see it. And it's not like someplace else, right? It's everywhere? Or how, how, do, and, and it, uh, how, how does it, uh, what is the substance? Why does it matter? Yeah. Two great questions. Where is dark matter and what is dark matter? I would love to know the answer to both of those. We know something about it, though. Where is dark matter? Well, dark matter is clumped with us. You're exactly right. There's dark matter all around us. If you hold your hand out and open it, you're holding a handful of dark matter. Now, you're not really holding it because you're not capturing it. You can't interact with it. It passes right through you, and you pass right through it, like you know, somebody you ignore on the street. And uh, so you can't really interact with it, but it is here with us because dark matter follows the distribution of normal matter. Wherever in the night sky you see lights and in galaxies, you'll, there is also dark matter. And the reason is simple. It's just gravity. The two um, both affected by gravity. And in fact, it's not the case that dark matter follows the distribution of normal matter. It's the opposite because there's much more dark matter than what we call normal matter. There's five times as much dark matter the normal matter actually follows the distribution of dark matter. There's dark matter spread out through the universe in these blobs, and normal matter clumps together where the dark matter is. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have things like galaxies, because the dark matter's gravity allowed galaxies to form. So we know where dark matter is. It follows most of the pattern of normal matter. What is dark matter? We really don't know. It could be made out of particles. We know that it has gravity. We know that it's matter. That's about all we know. It could be made out of particles. It could be made out of one kind of particles. It could be made out of 17 kinds of particles. It could be some new crazy form of matter that we've never experienced before. We have to be very careful extrapolating into the unknown dark matter from the known. Right? You might think, well, every kind of matter we've ever seen before has been made out of particles. So maybe dark matter is also made out of particles. Sounds reasonable, but remember, we've only seen 5% of the universe, and we shouldn't extrapolate from, from one little unrepresentative example to the rest of the universe. And the reason it gets its name matter is because of uh, its influence as gravity. That's right. It really matters. Okay. So what, is there a proposal? Is there, a, is there an imagination of what might be done to discover more about dark matter? Are there experiments uh, lined up, or is this just really an unknown that will remain unknown? No, absolutely. It's an important part of the physics program these days is figuring out what is dark matter. And there's lots of ongoing, really interesting experiments. So far, none of them have conclusive evidence for what dark matter is, but they're working on it. One classic approach is to try to see dark matter as a particle, to see a dark matter particle banging into a normal matter particle. Now, this would be very difficult to see because you know normal matter particles are being banged into all the time. So they do this experiment deep underground where most normal matter particles like um, muons from space and, and other kinds of things are filtered out by like a kilometer more of rock. So they find an old abandoned mine and underneath they put a particle detector and this particle detector is a huge vat of liquid, for example. And then they just wait for one molecule in that liquid to get banged into by a dark matter particle. That's what they're hoping to see. 
So they make this vat as big as possible to capture as many dark matter particles as they can, and they make it as quiet as possible so that no other kind of particle interactions will confuse them. And then they just wait a long time and look for one. So far, they haven't seen them. They haven't seen them, but uh, part of what you wrote in your book is that they, they're not quite sensitive enough, uh, the instruments, right, to be able to measure if that happens? That's right. The recent ones have been too small. There's been sort of proof of principle. Um, recently, though, they started to turn on much bigger ones, ones that have, for example, one ton of liquid xenon in them, which is a pretty crazy substance. But it's excellent for seeing dark matter because it's a noble gas, so it doesn't have very many interactions on its own. It just will sit there quietly if you do nothing. So one ton of liquid xenon is an excellent detector. They've recently turned on those kinds of machines, and they're just sitting there waiting. So pretty soon we'll know the answer if dark matter is a kind of particle um, that can have interactions at the level that we think it should. Um, but it might be that they see nothing. And if, that's, if they see nothing, it might be, mean that dark matter is not a particle, or dark matter is a particle, but it doesn't interact with normal matter particles at all, except for gravity. All of these, all of the dark matter experiments are hoping that there's some way that dark matter will interact with normal matter, some way for it to bang into it and send a message other than gravity. Uh, we don't know that that's the case. It might be totally impossible to see dark matter particles um, other than gravity. And because gravity is so weak, you can't just see it you can't see the gravity from one dark matter particle. You need a planet or a galaxy-sized blob. That would make it difficult. But we're hopeful, and we're hopeful that we'll see it. I'm speaking with Daniel Whiteson and Jorge Cham. They are the authors of We Have No Idea, a guide to the unknown uh, universe. And, and Daniel Whiteson, uh, physicist at the uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, speaking there. And Jorge Cham, Jorge, you are um, the creator of Ph.D. Comics. Can you tell me a little bit? You are also are you also a physicist? Uh, no, I am not. I'm not that cool, I guess. Uh, I'm a uh, roboticist. Robotics, yeah, I'm a roboticist right. by training. Yeah, but then I went into cartooning uh, as a profession. So um, I draw something called PhD Comics, and it's kind of people usually just describe it as the Dilbert of academia. It's kind of like a, a workplace kind of um, a comic strip about the, the funny things that happen at a university. But you have to know your science to be able to write funny cartoons about it, right? <laughs> um, well, that's kind of where I, uh, our part, my partnership with Daniel comes in. Um, so he's the expert in physics, and he's also a funny guy. Um, but I would, uh, we would just have these conversations about these amazing and incredible, mind-blowing topics, and then together we would write books. Well, you know, one of the most difficult thing uh, about well, what's the most difficult thing about physics? Well, for, but but I mean, one of the things that is hard, it's not intuitive, right? It's hard to make metaphors or because it's like math at the end of the day, right? So um, and, and that's part of the cartoon part is to kind of find creative ways to what make metaphors, make word pictures for stuff that um, is really tough to talk about. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff, uh, like Daniel said, we have no idea what it's made out of. Is it a particle, or is it stuff, or is it like a field, like dark matter or dark energy? Um, but I always say that it's, it's kind of actually easier to draw that kind of a thing, because since nobody has any idea what it looks like, um, it's, I can just make stuff up. <laughs> you can't be wrong. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, or nobody could prove it. Uh -huh. um, and so I can, I can just start kind of draw a blob and, and put some question marks on it. Um, it gets a little bit harder when we talk about like um, quantum fields, which people have a very precise mathematical idea about, but not necessarily a physical uh, idea. Their book is called We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. Jorge Cham and uh, Daniel Whiteson are my guests. And uh, we just uh, finished talking about uh, dark matter. Uh, what is dark energy? And it's a lot of it, 68% of, of the universe. That's right, and I think uh, Jorge is too modest when he says that he uh, just sort of makes stuff up. I agree. Uh, in my opinion, one of the uh, one of the wonderful things about his comics, and when he's explaining physics and other science concepts, is it really has a great visual style for capturing something that's difficult and explaining it uh, in a compelling way. So, for example, in our book, we talk about the mysteries of time or 
you know, the mysteries of space and a lot of these things. He's really, I would write something, but then he would come up with a really nice graphic to crystallize it and, and really help people see it because some people learn really well by reading. Other people really need diagrams. So I think it's, it's a really powerful tool and because uh, Jorge is both an artist visually and he has a scientific background, it made for a really um, special collaboration in my opinion. Um, but back to the question of dark energy, yeah, so dark energy is two-thirds of the universe, right? And to understand what that means and, and what dark energy is, and to understand how it was discovered, people were trying to figure out what is the history of the universe and therefore what is the future of the universe. So the Big Bang, right, the beginning of the universe, huge explosion, stuff flies out everywhere. And, um, you know, interesting stuff happens, like galaxies are formed, planets are made, you know, uh, cats, all that stuff. And then people were wondering, what's going to happen next? Well, one scenario is that there's so much stuff in the universe that has so much gravity that it's going to slow things down from the Big Bang, eventually stop them, turn it around, and pull everything back together into a tiny dot. So we call that the Big Crunch, sort of a big explosion followed by a turnaround and, and collapse back into a, a dot again. That was option A. Another scenario people were considering was that there wasn't enough gravity in the universe to slow down the, the, the explosion and turn it around. The things would just gradually drift away from each other, slowing down forever, but never enough to stop and turn around, so spreading out forever. And that option B is called the heat death of the universe. So it was either the big crunch or the heat death, but then people went out to look at this, and they looked at stars to try to figure out how fast things were moving away from us um, a billion years ago or five billion years ago, and they were totally shocked to discover that the answer was neither option A nor option B, but secret option C, which is that after the Big Bang, things didn't start slowing down at all. In fact, they were accelerating. That means that the expansion of the universe is faster now than it was a billion years ago and faster than five billion years ago. There's no slowing down at all. And so if you know something about physics, you know that to accelerate enormous masses, when we're talking about galaxies here filled with hundreds of billions of stars, that requires a lot of energy. And so we don't know what that is. We don't know why it's accelerating the expansion of the universe, why it's pushing everything apart, but we know that it's happening, and we know that it takes an enormous amount of energy to do that. So that's why two-thirds of the energy of the universe is captured in, by this thing called dark energy. We don't know what it is, why it's doing it, whether it will continue to do this, but we do know that we only recently discovered it. And that's the humbling part, but the exciting part of our knowledge of the universe. We only recently learned how little we know about the universe. And... And my point is not to say, oh, scientists don't know anything or scientists are so ignorant. We've learned a lot. It's just that this, it's to emphasize that there are amazing discoveries ahead, that basic things about the universe we're continuing to learn, basic facts about our human context and the human experience are going to be uh, revealed to us in the decades or centuries to come. And so we know still very little about the universe. And that's supposed to be an optimistic message, right, that there's exciting discoveries ahead. And that's what's uh, very clear in your book about, uh, yeah, don't get bummed out about what we don't know. This is uh, this is the opportunity to discover. And think of it, my father, who is now 99, and he was born in 1918, and he was a chemist. Uh, when he was born, the universe itself was understood to be really just the Milky Way galaxy. Am I right on that? That, I mean, that's how much we've learned just since my dad was born. That's right. In the last hundred years, we've discovered that there are other galaxies. Exactly. What a mind-blowing discovery, right? That not only is our galaxy enormous, but it's one of trillions. Yeah. Talk about changing our understanding of the very human context, right? How we live and the importance of our lives. That's a, an enormous discovery, absolutely. Also, in that same time period, we discovered that the universe was expanding. People thought for a long time the universe was just a bunch of stars sprinkled through space static, just floating there. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm speaking with Daniel Whiteson and Jorge Cham, authors of We Have No Idea, a guide to the unknown universe. More to come. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? 
Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Creator of Ph.D. Comics, Jorge Cham, and particle physicist Daniel Whiteson are my guests on Progressive Spirit. They are co-authors of We Have No Idea, a guide to the unknown universe. And for a while, we thought that the universe uh, was infinite. Does that make sense, um, even the word infinite in physics? It's hard to think about, but it does make sense physically. Um, and to this day, we still don't know. Is the universe infinite or is it finite, right? If you set off in a spaceship and fly off as fast as you can and go on forever, will you continue to encounter new space forever till the end of time, which could be never? Or will you run into an edge? Or will you come back around to where you started, right? We don't know the size of space. We also don't know the shape of space. Like, how is space connected to other space? So one theory is that the universe is infinite. You can go in any direction as far as you want, for, and that you'll always encounter new stuff, right? And that's kind of crazy to think about. Like, how can you create an infinite universe filled with an infinite amount of stuff in it, right? Those concepts of infinity I find um, fascinating, but also hard to think about. Um, another possibility is that space is infinite. You can go on forever, but that there's only a finite amount of stuff. The Big Bang was created from a single dot, and all the energy in the universe is finite, and that you could run out of stuff and you can go into empty space. That's another crazy idea. because, And that's crazy because then why is there stuff here in this part of space, but not somewhere else? What makes this part of space special, right? Um, and yet another idea is that both are finite. Both the size of the universe is finite and the amount of stuff in it that you could get to a place where space ends. And uh, if you and your listeners are thinking, what does that mean, space ending? What could be beyond the edge of space? To think about that clearly, you have to think about what space itself is. And if you're thinking, oh, well, space is just the background, it's the abstract nothing, it's the emptiness, right? Well, then you have to rethink your, your understanding of space because in the last... 20 or 30 years, we've learned a lot about space, and we've learned that space is much more than nothing. Space can do things like expand. That's what dark energy is. It's expanding space. It can bend. That's what gravity is. It, gravity bends space, so the things moved on curved, move on curved paths. And space can even ripple. That's what gravitational waves are. So we only recently figured out that space is a thing. It's a dynamical, physical thing with properties and probably properties we haven't even imagined. And so it's certainly possible that space, because it's a thing, can end. And what could be beyond it? We have no idea. My guests are Jorge Cham and Daniel Weitz, and their book is called We Have No Idea, uh, A Guide to the Unknown Universe, and it's uh, written in uh, 17 chapters, and each chapter uh, is a question. Uh, for example, one of those is, what is space? Uh, what is time? Uh, what's the most basic element of matter? And uh, written in a form that is... Uh, easily uh, approachable and uh, also funny and with cartoons. So how did you guys get together and uh, figure out to write this book? Uh, well, our standard answer is that we, uh, we met on the Internet, <laughs> like most <laughs> couples these days. Um, but, yeah, the story said, uh, Daniel, this was around the time that the big discovery of the Higgs boson happened a few years ago. I don't know how many of your readers remember. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of buzz about the Higgs boson, and Daniel just kind of felt like nobody was really explaining this very well or what it was or how they were looking for it or why they were looking for it. And so he just kind of decided to um, take matters into his own hands and, and find people to collaborate with to create something that explains this to the public. And so he, uh, he sort of uh, knew about me, he emailed me, and then we, we worked on um, a little video and then some comics that explained what the Higgs boson was. And, so that's how we started. And and the goal of this book is really to communicate um, a, a kind of a unique perspective of what don't we know as as kind of a spur to uh, get excited about science. And uh, and it's written in the popular form, so uh, people with uh, who are not professionals can uh, can engage with it. 
That's right. And that was one of the ideas for using cartoons um, uh-huh. and comics because we wanted something that was visually appealing and Jorge has a great style, but also something that was non-intimidating, something that makes you feel like, oh, I can handle this or this is not too much for me or um, I, can, I can understand this. Um, and also it gives you a bit of a break. We tried to inject some humor into it because while these topics are fascinating and they're fun to think about, sometimes your brain needs a rest from heavy-duty physics topics. And so the visuals give you something else to think about, and there's some jokes in there to entertain you along the way. And so the idea was to um, give people a sense for what science doesn't know, but also to entertain them while we were doing it. And we had a lot of fun writing the book, so we were always laughing while while we were doing it. We were hoping that some of that would come on, come out onto the written page. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, now, here's a question that I that I have. My my wife thinks it's funny too. Uh, we uh, I hear about the theory of everything, and I have to say, you have a chapter on it too. And I have to say, it it sounds just a bit pretentious. You know, I'm working on the theory of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so what is this about, and could there really ever be such a thing, uh, especially since 95% of the universe is unknown? <laughs> That's a great question. Theory of everything does sound more important than theory, theory of something, right? Uh-huh. And uh, It probably sounds better. <laughs> <grand>. um, <clears throat> I think the, the question, though, comes from this goal. Physics is always trying to describe all the things we see around us in terms of a simpler set of ideas. You know, you look around, you see a lot of complicated stuff in the universe, and you ask, can we explain all of this complicated stuff using a few rules? That's the physics approach to solving the universe. And uh, we look at it sort of like a lot of layers of the onion. You know, you can understand the way balls bounce on, on the ground using Newtonian physics. And that's correct at this level, but if you dig deeper, one layer down into the onion, then you need to use quantum mechanics to describe the particles. So then we ask, well, can we explain those particles in terms of something smaller? And you could imagine going on forever, smaller and smaller pieces and deeper and deeper theories. But we wondered in the book, is it possible to have a theory of everything? Is there a lowest layer of reality, a a smallest particle or a smallest piece of the universe or a fundamental level beyond which you can't go below? Um, And that's attractive to me because if that does exist, and you could get there, it means that you've peeled back all the layers and you're seeing sort of the universe for what it really is. You know, this is the basic rules out of which everything else is the consequence, right? If you could learn what the fundamental rules of the universe were and everything followed from that, then you'd be sort of looking at the source code of the universe or, you know, nature's playbook or, you know, God's rules, whatever you believe. And we have to hope that seeing that, but somehow give us the insight we're thirsty for, right? To understand this universe we find ourselves in. Is it possible? We don't know. It might be that we could go on forever, peeling back layers of the onion until we get to ridiculously tiny particles that nobody can even really think about. But it might be that we get to a lowest level, and there's some reasonable but hand-wavy arguments that there might be a smallest part of space, there might be a tiniest particle, there might be a, a, a core to the onion. And that's just the simple argument of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics tells us that so far, um, everything we've seen is quantized. It's broken up into discrete units. And so it's might, it might be that the universe is also, that space itself is pixelated, that there's a tiniest piece of space that is possible to even think about from a physics point of view. We don't know that that's true, but we suspect it might be. And there's a very hand-wavy calculation. You multiply a bunch of numbers together to say, what is that size of space? And it's like 10 to the minus 35 meters. It's incredibly tiny. You know, 0.0 with 35 zeros in front of it and then a 1. That's much, much smaller than anything we can see. So we have no idea if this number is meaningful at all. But it's a suggestion. So it might be that this is the lowest level of the universe, and it might be that we can get there. And I think if we can, that we could really learn something deep about the universe. What do you think, just uh, personally, um, that you might be able to discover within your own career as a physicist, you personally, or, or, or just science in general? I mean, what's, what's, what's out there, or, or is it just so amazing that you don't even know what you might discover next? Absolutely. Um, there are a few things we can point to that we, we suspect we might find soon. But, and, for example, we might see dark matter. In the next few years, we might really discover 
what is dark matter? What kind of particle is it? Uh, that certainly is conceivable. Uh, another thing we might discover in the next few years is um, alien life. You know, we've recently made this breakthrough where we can see planets around other stars and we can count the number of planets around other stars that are like Earth. And the numbers are shocking. You know, it's 20% of stars have an Earth-like planet. Given the number of stars, that's a huge number of Earth-like planets. And every year we develop new technologies. Soon we'll be able to measure the atmosphere around those planets and then to image them. And we might eventually discover a planet that has very convincing signs of life in our lifetime. That would be incredible. All those things are mind-blowing, but the greatest opportunity is to discover something accidentally, something surprising. And one of the points of our book is that the unknown unknown is much bigger than the known unknown. Um, and that from the perspective of future physicists a thousand years in the future, we're really still at cavemen, cavewoman times, right, in terms of our understanding of basic facts about the universe. So in our lifetime, I hope that somebody stumbles across something crazy, something that makes no sense initially, something that just you know, makes a physicist's head explode when they think about it because it fundamentally violates everything we've understood. You know, discoveries at the scale of quantum mechanics, where we have to toss out basic notions that we assume were true, like the universe follows deterministic laws, right? We know that it follows laws, but now we know those laws are probabilistic, not deterministic. So I'm hoping for discoveries at that scale, discoveries that totally change the way we think about the universe. And those will probably be a surprise when they come. Daniel Whiteson and Orhei Cham, my guests, we have no idea. A Guide to the, known, a guide to the Unknown uh, Universe is their book. And I, I do have a couple of more questions for you, but I also want to ask a, a question in general about, about science. Uh, part of your book, I think, is, is certainly trying to get people excited uh, about entering science. And uh, uh, I don't know, what do, what do you think about the state of science education and uh, the willingness to explore it today? Uh, well, we could certainly do better, I think, uh, uh-huh. starting with uh, believe, believing science. <laughs> yeah, because that's part of what I was going to get to is that, you know, people kind of hear lots of things, uh, whatever might be some wild theory, and think that that's because physics is and, and uh, science is rather complicated. It's uh, people may believe strange things as if they were what physicists are saying. That's certainly true. Yeah, we need to educate people how to think scientifically, how to read critically, how to um, you know apply their um, their brains to these questions and come up with ideas um, and and demand evidence and facts. Um, I think uh, we should remember how we got to where we are as a country. Why do we have this powerful economy? Why do we have this um, successful economic engine? Um, it's because of science. All of the money that we invested in basic research over the last 50 years that have led to technological revolutions, all of that comes from funding basic science. And so I think we need to improve science education, absolutely. I also think that uh, as a society, we should pour a lot more money into basic research. And I don't say that just because my career is in basic research, but from a very simple point of view, it's, a, it's an incredible investment in our future and in our children and in... in, in uh, in our scientific progress. There's so many places where if we spent more money, we could literally just buy knowledge. You know, if we built a larger particle accelerator, we could learn secrets of the universe that are just waiting there for us to do it. And the amounts of money we're talking about are large when we're compared to an individual's expenses. You know, a particle accelerator costs billions of dollars. But they're tiny when it comes, when you compare it to the economy of our country, which is trillions of dollars and tiny compared to other things we spend money on, like aircraft carriers. So I think we need to ask ourselves as a society what's important to us and how do we maintain our um, our quality of life and our intellectual vitality. And I think that funding basic research is a very important part of it. Is the You know, you talked earlier uh, uh, about... Uh perhaps alien life. And I'm wondering, is the universe are, are, are big, big enough and has it existed long enough to really have intelligent life evolve somewhere else? I mean, I often wonder about, is there a way to even to calculate it? Is, isn't it small odds uh, that chimpanzees and trees and, and humans exist at all? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. It's a great question. We only have this one example, right? So we have yeah. to be very careful not to generalize. But we do know a few things. We know that life existed on Earth 
pretty soon after conditions for life were available, right? That life has been on Earth for billions of years, which is incredible. Um, and so we hope that that means, or I hope, that that means that in other places in the universe, that where they, there seems like there's a lot of places in the universe where there are conditions for life like ours, I hope that that means that life is appearing there also. But we don't know. It could be that that first moment of life, you know, the creation of, of life out of non-life, when molecules assembled into some self-replicating machinery, that moment might be very, very unlikely. And that's the biggest question is, is the probability for that to happen one in two, in which case the universe is teeming with life, or one in, you know, quadrillions, in which case we might be one of the only examples. We just don't know the answer to that question. Because if you're the one, you don't know if you're one in, in trillions or one in, um, you know, in two. And so until we find life uh, somewhere else, we can't really possibly know that answer. Another question for you. You, you had your um, educational work in robotics, and, and that seems to be a, a field that is really growing. Where are we with that, and how far are, is that possible, um, possibility of robotics going and helping us? Yeah, um, well, I think uh, I'm just like everyone else, just waiting for our robot overlords to tell us uh, <laughs> what to do next. <laughs> well, there is uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think that there have been amazing uh, advances, you know, not just in um, artificial intelligence and, you know, how that has really kind of seeped into our everyday lives and our phones and in our Facebook feeds and things like that. Um, but, yeah, no, ro robotics has also come a long way uh, in terms of the physical robots. You know, we can send these robots to Mars. We can um, have these robots that uh, can uh, kind of in our homes and help people with disabilities. It's a, it's a, it is a pretty exciting time for, for robotics. Their book is called We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. My guests, uh, Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson, uh, filled with questions to inspire more questions. What, uh, what, uh, final one, what's the most exciting question uh, that uh, you think we haven't answered? Yeah. I think for me it's this idea of um, how big is the universe. You know, We really don't know how big the universe is. Uh, it could, it, like Daniel said, it could go on forever and ever and ever, or there could be like an end to the universe, in which case that's mind-blowing as well, you know? Like, what's, why does the universe end at some point, and what's on the other side of that end? Uh, so I think that, to me, is a, is a very cool question. Yeah. Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also fascinated by those questions, as well as this simple question of what is space? You know, we talked mm. a little bit about we don't know the size of space, the shape of space, there are other really interesting mysteries about space, like how many dimensions are there of space? I've been thinking about this question since I learned about it when I was 12. And, you know, the question is, space in space you can go back and forth, left or right, up or down, but there might be other ways that you can move that we haven't discovered yet. Um, that's really hard to think about because your brain is so trained to thinking about three-dimensional space. But space could be five-dimensional or 11 or 26 dimensions. Uh, that would be pretty exciting to discover. You know, I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, uh, and you had a number, Jorge, in the book, uh, illustrations of uh, the star, Starship Enterprise and, and the, the relationship between, let's say, science fiction and, and physics. Is, is there any sense in which uh, the imagination of science fiction uh, helps us get a handle on, on real problems of science? Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah. I think it's an interesting a dialogue, you know, it's not a one-directional flow of ideas. Uh -huh. You know, I think a lot of um, science fiction writers, they keep up with the latest discoveries and ideas that physicists have, and I think physicists um, also uh, take from science fiction writers, you know, pushing, you know, the way science fiction writers push the ideas, and I think that helps inspire the physicists, for sure, yeah. Are there other possibilities of other universes? And is that a metaphysical question, or is that something that um, I, I guess what the, the 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 mathematics can possibly point to the idea of more universes than this one, or is that an unknown as well? That's totally an unknown, and we have to be really careful what we mean by other universes. Okay. Um, I think about the universe as everything there is, all the stuff, all the space. Um, and so if there's another universe, it would mean something else, something we can't ever interact with. 
which already puts it outside the scope of science because if you can't interact with it, that means you could never prove that it exists, which means it's not a scientific question. It's a fascinating philosophical question to talk to your friends about at two in the morning, but it's not necessarily something we can ever answer with science. There are a lot of really interesting questions that are science questions. There are also a bunch that are fascinating and science-related, but not necessarily science-answerable. Okay, and one final one. Was there time before the Big Bang? Wow, we have no idea. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's the best thing we can give. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, there's some interesting ideas there, right, Daniel? Like, some people say that time began at the Big Bang, but there's no, no really time before that, right? That's right. Some people think that. Some people think that... Um, there might be something else before the Big Bang. You know, time goes backwards in, into negative infinity. Um, the universe could be cycles, Big Bang, Big Crunch, Big Bang, Big Crunch. We really just don't know. And it might be that we never know, because it might be that all the clues about what happened before the Big Bang might have been destroyed, right, by the, by the Big Bang itself. You know, all this um, matter cr crunched down into an infinitely dense dot. Uh, or it could be that we figure it out, that we sift through the rubble from the Big Bang and get just the clues we need figure out what came before and what caused it. Um, so that's a huge mystery. And I like thinking about how in a thousand years people might know the answer, right? And they would wonder, what was it like to live back in 2017 when they didn't know these basic things about our existence? So here we are li living in that ignorance, right? And excited about the possibility of learning the answers. All right. What, what a fun thing. I'd talk to you guys forever. Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson. But since I can't and you can't, you can get their book. Uh, we have no idea. A guide to the unknown universe. Uh, thank you both for uh, for the book and for spending time with me today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown University, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, Alameda Community Radio, KACR, Alameda, California, KZ88, Kabul, Missouri, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, and WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station or favorite commercial station uh, to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be well. <laughs>